arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. The college football season is already underway, so if you've thought about betting on football, now is the time. I'm going to take you through some key tips if this is your first time betting on football or if you just need a little bit of a refresh. Some main things we're going to talk about today. First off, what is a point spread? What's a money line? And what's the over-under you often see? Hey, you're listening to Channel Z, the gambling channel. This is where the Matthias Jones series begins. Jones, in his first year as a high school coach, shows off his coaching abilities. His performance is being watched far away in New Hampshire. This is where Matthias Jones and Coco Stefani meet and become lifelong friends. And we are introduced in this episode, if only by phone, to the town patriarch of Hamilton, New Hampshire, Hamilton Fletcher himself. We pick up the story from the beginning, as Jones did, his dad and Aunt May, together in the kitchen talking about Jones's future and Bill Jones's job as an investigator. Episode one of Rest in Peace, Bill Jones begins now on Fitting on the Air. Rest in Peace, Bill Jones. Chapter one. Wabash Corners High School, Wabash Corners, Indiana. He idealized Dad as much as Dad idealized him. Both men had earned each other's respect. Matthias Jones, clipboard in hand, stared into Dad's intense chestnut eyes. Dad's hair, mostly gray now, indicated that retirement was not far away. He was a superb detective, but with his blunt style, he could never finesse a football team. The lines on his forehead had deepened, yet he retained the tenacity and street smarts of a veteran investigator. As the team went through the drills on the practice field, Jones brushed the dust off his emerald and white football jacket. He was one victory into the season, and Dad had an opinion on his running of the team. How are you feeling, Dad? Flu all gone? Nothing wrong with this guy. You always say that. Let's talk about you, Matthias. Me? You're a great quarterback, probably the best ever at Wabash Corners. What about Ohio Central? laughed Jones. Pretty good there, too. Dad folded his arms. But you have to lead now, son. Lead, not get the signals from the coach. You are the coach. Yes, sir, said Jones as he grinned and saluted. His team in their green and white uniforms warmed up at the far end of the field. I'm serious, Matthias. I had this discussion with May last night and your aunt knows football. Do I tell you how to be a good detective, Dad? asked Jones, leaning toward Dad. Yes, you do. Well, I've always welcomed your side road theories. In fact, you would have made a good investigator because you never never give give up, up, said Jones in unison with his dad. Dad was a widower when Jones was only five years old, and he wanted his son to become a cop, but Jones was an athlete. Jones chuckled. Is that all, Dad? He looked over at his rotund Aunt May in a Wabash Connors jacket, nodding her head in agreement with her brother. No, one more thing. And what's that? Hit him, and hit him hard. Right, Dad, where are you off to? Tracking down corruption. I might have to go up north tomorrow for a few days and talk to a witness. Jones shook his head and then hugged him. Be careful, Dad. If I was careful, I wouldn't do what I do. 
Get out there and win. I'm going to the Nationals with this team. Dad's crooked teeth formed a smile that ascended over his gums. He put his hand on Jones's shoulder. Son, I know your determination. You might just do it. Chip off the old blockhead. Dad liked that one and tilted his head back as he laughed. Oh, yeah. Talk to you later, Dad. Rock and roll. Dad saluted and then walked over to the bleachers. He muttered a few things to Aunt May and then headed for his bright green pickup, parked near the bike racks at the end of the high school parking lot. Jones checked his analog watch and then panned the field, surrounded by a cinder block track. He had played sports here as a boy in high school football only six years ago. Dad had always been in the stands, usually with Aunt May. In the parking lot, Dad opened up the pickup door and got inside. Jones heard the engine start as he turned toward his team. He smiled when he thought about telling Dad about going to the Nationals. But then again, Dad always liked aiming high. Jones, his silver-haired Aunt May, and a table full of neighbors sat in the wood booths along the windows at Mulligan's Bar. The balding Jack Dumphy from WBSH raised his bushy brows and formulated his next question in his deep, resonating voice. I have a source that told me that your team is going to the Nationals. Jones gave him a double take. Jack, would I say something like that? Apparently you did. This team is going to take it one game at a time. Aunt May gave him the thumbs up sign. The Nationals are one big goal, said Jack. Jones smiled. Yes, Jack, one big goal. Thank you, Coach Jones. My pleasure, he said as he leaned toward his dark-eyed aunt. How did I do? You smiled too much, Matthias. It was radio, Aunt May. Well, people can tell. Oh, hogwash, said Jones as Stephanie in her jeans and Wabash high school jacket approached the booth. Her dark hair was freshly trimmed and her coal eyes looked like a half-open blind. Jones looked up as she kissed his cheek. What'd you think of the game, Stephanie? Sweet, she said, producing her usual fixed smile. Hello, Auntie May. Sweet, asked Jones under his breath. He stood and fought his way between the patrons at the far side of the bar. Stephanie continued to pontificate back at the table, oblivious to the fact he was no longer at the table. Jones ordered a beer from Mike and leaned on the bar. He tried to figure out how he had let Stephanie, a pushy social studies teacher, weasel her way into his life. She was all over him at the first faculty meeting in August. It was as if she had been following him and had planned to make him a part of her life. Two weeks after they met, Jones was at her parents' dining room table eating a roast. Jones had been so wrapped up with his team being successful that he just let her take over. I should have known. You should have known what? Asked Mike, wiping the bar. Jones shook his head. What did Norman Abbott say about the two victories? Jones pursed his lips. You know, Mike, that guy was Mr. Congeniality when he convinced me to coach my old high school team. Norman? asked Mike, placing both hands on the bar. Principal Abbott. That man is the most unfunny, unhappy dude I ever met. Like I said something to upset him. Right. He's always walking around like he's angry at the world. Well, he probably is, said Jones. Take care, Mike. Don't you want your beer? Jones looked across the bar as Stephanie now sat next to Aunt May. On second thought, said Jones, sitting on the stool, I will have that beer. Jones responded to the 6 a.m. sharp knock on Aunt May's wooden front door. 
He bounded down the stairs. Through the window, the bucktooth Sheriff Boynton paced on the front porch. Jones's stomach wrenched. Even before he opened the door, he was sure something had happened to Dad. Boynton's pale, flat face and his watery eyes unnerved Jones. The sheriff spoke in his official voice, stating succinctly that Dad was found in his pickup at the water's edge near the Warbash Corners Bridge. Bill's dead. He hugged Jones. Heart attack. I don't believe it, Boynton. Jones had inherited more than just Dad's persistence. He was suspicious and questioned possible criminal activity at the river. Jones, sweat beating on his forehead, drove ahead of Aunt May and Boynton. He raced his off-road Honda along the state highway. Ahead, Dad's shiny green pickup dipped downward on the riverbank, just a few hundred yards from the Wabash Corner's girded bridge. Jones skidded to a stop behind three cruises and several unmarked sedans. At least a half a dozen people lingered around the truck. He ran down the embankment. The tire marks were still pressed into the dirt. The tall, raven-haired FBI agent, Mark Dunneman, a close friend and associate of his dad, blocked Jones. Let me go through, Mark. That's my dad in that truck. Hold on, Matthias, said Donovan. I'm sorry. Jones grit his teeth. What happened? Heart attack. Heart attack? Mark, you've worked with dad for years. He's in great shape. Heart attack? That's ridiculous. We need to finish up down here. Finish up what? Can't be a crime scene if you had a heart attack. Jones hung his head and pinched the bridge of his nose. Then he looked up quickly. This is bullshit. There are no signs of foul play, bruises, abrasions, rib clothes, etc. But the medical examination boys are still doing their job. Jones pushed him aside and marched to Dad's truck. Donovan shouted at him. Matthias, come on, I don't need anybody rocking the boat. Jones leaped past a pudgy cop taking photos of the truck. No one was inside. Where the hell is my father? Let him see his father. Jones circled around the back of the truck. Dad, covered by white sheets, was on a gurney facing the river. Jones lifted the sheet. Dad's eyes were closed, his face serene. He saw no signs of a struggle, no fight, no shootout with the bad guys. For a man who had spent his life fighting and solving crimes, Bill Jones had met a nondescript ending. Monsignor Nowicki, his Caesar-cut white hair bright in the sunshine, stood with Jones and Aunt May away from the graveside. Jones's team and members of the faculty had left, and Stephanie had returned to set up the VFW reception the way she wanted it. Jones clutched onto the folded American flag that the Marine Guard had given him. He could still hear the bugler's mournful notes as taps just minutes ago had echoed throughout the cemetery's oaks and evergreens against the blue sky. Mark Donovan's gray sedan started back toward town. The FBI agent had apologized numerous times for being brusque at the river. Jones wanted more information, but Dad's friend in the FBI said there was nothing more. Jones believed he was lying. It was his time, said Monsignor Nowicki. Jones had known Nowicki most of his 23 years on the planet. He nodded and panned back to the mahogany casket, not yet lowered into the grave below the spreading oak where the hill began to rise. The silver Wabash Connors Bridge in the background connected the rest of the United States to his hometown on the eastern side. Boynton exited his two-tone green cruiser. Jones marched along the loose stone walkway. Boynton removed his hat as he approached Jones. 
His peppered hair was silver in the sun. Thias, I just got off the phone with the medical examiner's office. Ms. Roberts read me the official report. Your dad had a massive clot. Boynton, dad never had any heart problems. He worked out. You know that. I know he did, but sometimes these things are undetectable. Jones shook his head. No, no, no. No bruises, no gunshot wounds, no injections. Jones faced the grave as he spoke. I need to know what case Dad was working on. I don't know. Jones spun around. What do you mean you don't know? You're the sheriff. Bill went undercover on this one. I honestly don't know what he was doing. Does Mark know? You'll have to ask him. And Dad just drives off the road. Yeah, right. Donovan's giving me a thousand apologies and the brush off. I think you may be trying to justify Bill's death. Shut up, Boynton. Then how do you explain the blood clot? asked Boynton. You think somebody made it happen. I don't discount anything. I'm sorry. Me too, said Jones as he started back to Aunt May. Then he stopped. Boynton was halfway back to the cruiser. Hey, Boynton! Boynton turned and Jones shouted out, Bill Jones would be all over this. Boynton pursed his lips as he rounded the cruiser. As the engine started, Aunt May reached Jones midway on the grass. Boynton pulled away in the cruiser. Well, what did you tell him? Jones grit his teeth. Aunt May, he just wants everything real tidy, just like Donovan. Aunt May's solemn face and dark eyes look frozen. I've been prepared for this for years. Me too. What are you going to do, Matthias? Jones stared at his father's wood-grain casket. I have a team. I can't just walk away from my team. But I'm going to do what Dad would do. I'm going to find the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Aunt May put her hand on his shoulder. So help me God. Jones smiled and then hugged her. So help me God. Rest in peace, Bill Jones. Chapter 2. Club Max, 35 Front Street, Prince William, New Hampshire. The saxophones and bass guitars thumped throughout the blue-lighted, smoke-filled bar. Coco knew they had exceeded the fire marshal's limit of 200 patrons, but he didn't care. He escorted Holly in her leather skirt across the floor. The slick-haired Bruno flagged him down from behind the bar. Coco, Lester Larson is looking for you. What are you telling me, Bruno? Larson's back at the club? He said, I don't give a damn what he said. Look, Bruno, I got ten grand on Channel Z spreads. I ain't got time for Lester Larson. He hit old man Manzini in the ass with a dart, said Cosmo, the other bartender. Coco wince. Bruno, call a cab for Holly. Is Larson still over by the dartboards? Bruno stood on his toes. Yeah, he's there. Coco kissed the curly-haired blonde on the cheek. I'll talk to you, Holly. Holly smiled and sashayed to the lobby. Coco's lighter flared out and he lit a cigarette as he moved. He exhaled and pivoted through the dance floor crowd. Lester Larson, just over five feet tall, stood on one of Coco's new cherrywood chairs. Lester had a dart in his left hand and a full beer mug in his right hand. His voice sounded like a speaker on overload. Then he sloshed the beer over the edge of the mug and onto Coco's new swirly blue rug. Hey! shouted Lester. I'm an expert with a football. You coach at Hamilton College? asked a thin brunette with multiple tattoos down her arms. Ah, my father coaches. He's a living legend. But I more or less run the team. Now. Stupid idiot, mumbled Coco, still moving forward. 
He caught sight of Manzini from Mampacata's office, standing against the railing and rubbing his buttocks. Hey, Mr. Manzini, are you all right? Manzini's mushy mustache rose upward as his dark eyes opened wide. The damn fool let the dart fly and got me in the rear end. Coco's face tightened and his body tensed as he grimaced at Lester, still mouthing off from atop the chair. Look, honey, said Lester. Lester bellowed at the blonde-haired April, holding her waitress's tray. I'll show you a good time. Coco accelerated toward the dartboards like a race car to the finish line at the Prince William Speedway. He stopped behind Lester. Hey, Lawson, put down the dart, moron. I don't take that kind of crap from no one. No how, he said, keeping his back to Coco. He threw the dart and hit a table lamp, popping the bulb. With his cigarette in the corner of his mouth, Coco surged forward. He grabbed Lester under the elbows and spun him around. Lester guzzled the beer and smacked the mug on the table. Coco studied the flesh-toned scar looping completely around Lester's neck. What happened to your neck, Lawson? Dr. Frankenstein screw up the head transplant? I don't know no Frankenstein. Look, Pygmy, you get your dumbass motor scooter and get out of town. Coco, come on. Lester's large jaw jutted out and his eyes were gargantuan behind blue-rimmed goggle glasses. Yeah, Coco, you just pegged a dot at old man Manzini. Did I hit him? asked Lester as Coco kept him up in the air. Yeah, you hit him in the ass. Bullseye. Coco thrust Lester into the air and across the table. Lester, his sneakers sticking out, slid over the far side of the table. Where the hell is Lawson? Protected my assets, said Lester in a muffled voice from under the table. Coco turned to the waitress. April, get Mr. Manzini a scotch and tell Bruno to get the first aid kit. Bring Manzini to the back room. He'll sue, said Lester from under the table. Coco pressed his lips. He ain't suing nobody, dweeb. April, you help him out with his wounds. He'll sue Club Max, repeated Lester. Coco turned over the table and Lester sat up on the rug. Then he stood, brushing off his arms. Hey, Lester. Yavol! I have a hot tip for you. Bring it on, said Lester, gesturing with his fingers. The only thing I want from you, Lawson, he said, signaling with his thumb, is for you to get the hell out of here and stay out. I can make you ten grand. Coco squinted. Every time you gamble, you lose, bozo. Then you don't pay up. Maybe I'll just send you back to South Boston. You can talk to Mr. Fiore. No, no, Fiore. Look, you need to bet on the Prince William Bloomers. What, an all-girl football team? There ain't no money in that. Game's rigged, said Lester, picking up somebody else's mug of beer off the adjacent table. Hey, that's not your beer, yelled Coco. He pushed Lester and then physically plowed him toward the front door. As a man in the corner table opened the door, he kicked Lester into the parking lot. Now go tell your old man he wants you. Huh? Said Lester near his little motor scooter. Why would I tell him that? Ah, snapped Coco, waving his hand through the air. Coco was still shaking his head after he crossed the bar. He pulled back the folding door to the area where he hung out and back. The river lights were still visible through the sliders. He skirted around the tables and then called into the next room. Everything all right in there, Mr. Manzini? Yeah, I'm feeling better. Good. <laughs> I'm sure you are. Coco poured himself a scotch and then added some water. Then he flipped on the large overhead monitor for Channel Z, the gambling channel. 
He put out his cigarette and lit another as he swigged the drink. Prince William Bloomers, what a fool. Bruno pulled back the doors and ducked his head inside. Hey, Coco, what is it now, Bruno? We put a call into Picada. He'll get back to you about Manzini. Good. And we fixed the table light and cleaned the rug with mugs of beer all around. If Lassen stayed any longer in the club, I'd go broke. The only person dumber than him is his old man. You mean the Hamilton coach? Yeah, Locke Lawson. Let me quote Father Gallagher. If that man won a football game, the Pope would make him a saint for performing a miracle. What about Manzini? Coco glanced at the rear room. He'll be fine. I gotta get back up front. Make sure Lawson never shows his ugly mug here at the club again. He's a detriment to business. Coach Lawson? No, the doofus. I'm talking about the little troll that was just in here. Coco shook his head as Bruno shut the folding doors. Coco checked the odds on a California horse race. Manzini emerged from the back room, followed by April. How's your ass, Mr. Manzini? April took care of the wound. Good, he said as a football game complete with odds came on the screen. You have my apologies for that dumbbell, Lawson. I knew I'd be in trouble when he started the fire in the men's room. Coco leaped to his feet. He what? Challenged Spike Sabo to a fight. Coco turned from the game. Why didn't Spike kick his ass? Spike's manager, Richie McGurk, stepped in. The little twerp knocked the cigar into the trash. When it caught fire, Lawson dumped the wastebasket in the alley. Are you kidding me? He took out his cell and opened the sliders. As he rounded the building, he called Boston. Ahead in the alley, a pile of burnt paper smoldered near the dumpster. Glass slipper. Yeah, this is Coco, he said, stomping on the charred paper. I need Mr. Fiore to call me at his convenience. I'm having trouble with that little squirt, Lester Lawson. We'll get the message to him, Mr. Stefani. Okay, I'll talk to you. Coco ran back along the grass near the river and entered through the open sliders. The football game continued on Channel Z. He stuck his head back into the club and signaled Bruno. The team from Wabash Corners, Indiana, was leading by 40 points. Yeah. Men's room's wastebasket was on fire in the alley. I'll have somebody clean it up. Yeah, well, you better bring some water. It was on fire, but it's just smoking now. Lester, nice guess, Bruno. I don't want that mongoose within 10 miles of the club. Bruno nodded and shut the folding doors. The Wabash Corners team had just scored another touchdown. The young coach ran along the sidelines, patting his players on the shoulder pads. Coco checked the odds. This was the national championship, and the Wabash team was a 6-1 to underdog. Bruno leaned inside. It's taken care of. Coco nodded. Not only was he upset with Lester Larson, but his bumbling old man had an aversion to winning. Coco had always bet against Hamilton College, even though he had connections with the Fletcher family. The Fletchers ran the college and everything else in the small New Hampshire town. He gripped the phone and debated whether to call the patriarch of the Fletcher family, Hamilton Fletcher. That young coach, whoever he was, might be thinking about coaching a college team. He put his cell back in his pocket just as the Wabash cornerback intercepted a pass down the middle and ran 60 yards for the touchdown. Again, the camera zoomed in on the coach, but this time his name was on the screen. Matthias Jones. He pushed the speed dial for Hamilton Fletcher. This Jones guy had to be 50 years younger than Lark Larson. He was filled with enthusiasm and clearly enjoyed winning. 
Hollings, the Fletcher butler, was clear on the voicemail greeting. Mr. Fletcher is preoccupied and will return your call momentarily. Yeah, Mr. Fletcher, it's Coco. I may have found a coach to take down the Lawson dynasty. I'll talk to you. When the game ended, Coco had been standing for 15 minutes. Wabash Corners had won the national championship 56 to nothing. Coco walked up to the monitor as a short woman reporter interviewed the coach on the field. Coach Matthias Jones, quite an impressive win for you. Well, not for me, Sheila, my boys. The whole team won this game. They showed up for every game. What's next for you, coach? <laughs> I'll tell you what's next for you, coach, said Coco. You're coming back east is what you're going to do. Well, I'm just going to celebrate with the team back in Indiana and have a piece of my Aunt May's apple pie. Apple pie? Coco checked his phone and then looked back at the TV. This guy's too good to be true. How do you attribute the team's phenomenal record? Jones's eyes filled and his voice cracked as he spoke. Hit him. It hit him hard. Rest in peace, Bill Jones. Chapter 3 Aunt May's Farmhouse, 322 Old Wabash Road, Wabash Corners, Indiana. Jones's notes, folders, and newspaper articles concerning his father's death were spread over the farmhouse's kitchen table. Aunt May finished the phone call to her friend Myra on the hall phone. In her white button sweater and house dress, she hobbled into the voluminous kitchen. Didn't you want any cookies, Matthias? No, said Jones, and he looked up. What was that, Aunt May? The question was, do you want any cookies? Yeah, sure. I haven't asked about what you're doing. Bill always said never to interrupt a man while he's working. But what have you got? Well, I've finally had time to look into this. Mark Donovan is a nice guy, but he's clearly holding back on what Dad was doing, and so is Boynton. So what's the big deal? Why was he headed up north? Where was he headed up north? Aunt May sat across the table. When he was done, when he could, Bill always talked about investigations, sometimes not. Donovan knows. I don't think Boynton knows. I went over Dad's whole cell phone bills. Calls to Iggy, that's it. Iggy was Bill's best friend. Calls to you and me up to a month and a half ago. And then all the work he did on the Bevins case in Illinois. But whatever he was working on since September isn't on his phone. Don't you find that strange, Aunt May? I do. I checked with all the cell companies. Nothing in his name for another phone. He looked into the front room toward the TV and the computer. Let me check something. What? She asked, following him into the front room. Jones sat down at the computer. He opened the browser and went into the map finder, but the search boxes were blank. Jones turned to his aunt. Where is Dad's phone? In his bedroom with his effects. I'll get it. Jones's own phone rang. An unknown area code flashed on the screen. He looked down the hall for Aunt May and then answered the phone. A funky beat from a bar or a restaurant filled the earpiece. Hey, you Jones? What? asked Jones as the music continued. I said, are you Jones? He shouted. Who wants to know? After a short silence, the man laughed as the music continued. Hey, I like that. Name's Coco. Coco Stefani. Jones peered down the hall again. What do you want? Listen, I got a hot tip for you. My life is filled with hot tips, pal. Jones hung up the phone as Aunt May, her face contorted, walked into the room with Dad's black frame phone. I don't understand. What's the matter, Aunt May? Well, this is Bill's phone, but the case isn't his. 
His was worn. This is new. So he got a new case. Or another phone. Aunt May handed the phone to him. How are you going to get his password? I was there when he got the phone. I programmed it in. He put in my mother's name, Marjorie. Jones imported his mother's name in and the phone opened up. It's his. Boynton already checked all the phone records. I know. And all the calls to you and me and to Iggy. Well, he's known Iggy since he was three years old. Jones nodded and checked the browser. Nothing. His phone rang again. The same number appeared on the screen. He pressed the phone to his ear. Hey, look, Stepapini. He heard a chuckle. Stefani, Coco Stefani. I'm serious, Jones. You want to coach college ball in New Hampshire? College ball? Who the hell are you? Never mind who I am. Ever hear of Hamilton College? Hamilton? I can't say that I have. On the coast of New Hampshire, between Maine and Massachusetts. See, they have this dimwit coach named Larson. He's been there for 40 years. He's finally retiring. What's his record? Coco laughed. <laughs> record? Larson never hit double digits. The man is an idiot. But that's irrelevant. The job's opening up. Aunt May mouthed the words, college? Jones raised his index finger. Why do you care? You work for the college? Let's just say I have a financial interest in the college, and I have connections. How did you track me down? Hey, you ask a lot of questions, Jones. A report about you is on Channel Z. Channel Z? Isn't that the gambling channel out of Atlantic City? What do you care what it is? Hold on. He spoke with somebody in the background. No, you tell him to bring the cash to the club, Bruno, tonight. You still there, Jonesy? Yeah, I'm here. He said, grinning at being called Jonesy. What I'm telling you is I can get you the job. One call to the Fletchers and you're in. Send me some information about the college and the athletic program. I'll have the old man call you. Old man? Hamilton Fletcher. Hey, you'll like it here. Well, thanks for calling. My pleasure. Jones stared at the phone. If that's for real, I was just offered a college coaching job. Aunt May pointed at him. Well, you did just win the national championship. You need to at least check it out, Matthias. Jones nodded as he scrolled down the numbers on his father's phone until last month. All the local numbers I recognize, Wabash Corner's numbers. I need to talk with Iggy. If Dad was going up north, either Iggy knew where he was going or Dad had some kind of map. Well, how many miles did he intend to go? Asked Aunt May. He was about to tell her that Dad's mileage was irrelevant. Wait. Jones hurried back to the kitchen table. He shuffled through his folders and then pulled out the police report with the exact truck mileage. 67,952. When's the last time he had the truck service? Well, you'll have to speak with Jerry down at the garage. I want to say a couple weeks back, not too long ago. She pointed at the handwritten numbers next to the landline phone in the kitchen. I'll check it out. We'll get the mileage, said Aunt May. But Aunt May, it all goes back to mimicking a heart attack. I just keep wondering if I'm grasping at straws. When you have exhausted all the possibilities, remember this, you haven't. Did Dad say that? He did, but Edison said it first. The lug nut wrench's looping crescendo caused Jones to step back to Jerry's office. He quickly closed the door as the large-nosed Jerry thumbed through a dozen folders balanced on his knees. Jerry, don't you have it on computer? Yeah, well, you got to put it in to get it out. So, I take it you didn't put in Dad's mileage on the truck. Jerry picked up a cigar. Well, maybe I did, but then again, maybe I didn't. Wait, his bill slipped. Three weeks ago, 67952. Are you sure, Jerry? Oh, Fergie knows numbers. 
Fergie plays the numbers. That too. Fergie got an A in math. Just double check it, please. We call Fergie the human calculator, said Jerry as he set the folders on the floor. I'll ask him, said Jones as he went back into the garage. The tall and husky Fergie's crew-cut and pinpoint head was inconsistent with his wide shoulders. He started the lug nut wrench just as Jones began to speak. He cupped his hands. Fergie! Fergie had an odd fascination with the spinning the lug nut off the tire rim. Fergie! Huh? He asked in his raspy voice, but the lug nut wrench spun toward Jones. Jones leaped back. You calling me, coach? Yeah, shut off the wrench. Sorry, I can't hear you because of the wrench. What's up? My dad's truck. I'm checking the mileage when it was in here. 67,952. How do you know that? Oh, I know numbers. 330% higher than usual. Jones was shocked at his mathematical ability. You are the human calculator. E equals MC squared. It's all relative. Yeah, right. And look, Fergie. Jones's cell phone rang again. As he pulled it from his coat, Fergie started removing the lug nuts again. Hello, this is Matthias Jones. Jones, this is Hamilton Fletcher. I'm sorry, who is this? Listen, Jones, I'm offering you the chance of a lifetime. Jones opened the door to Jerry's office. Jerry's side toilet kept repeatedly flushing. Look, pal, I don't do timeshare, said Jones, blocking his ear as the toilet flushed again. Then he stepped outside. Who is this? This is Hamilton Fletcher. I apologize, Mr. Fletcher. I couldn't hear you. Jones, my family has been in this town for 250 years. My line goes back to the great shipping families in Great Britain. Jones rolled his eyes. Mr. Fletcher, I appreciate your interest in what my team was able to accomplish this year. Good. Then you'll be glad to know that I'm interested in you taking the reins of the college athletic programs. Sir, I've lived here all my life. Then it's time for a change, son. I'm very happy here. And you couldn't be happier here. I've got a first-class ticket to Boston waiting for you. Sir, I appreciate it, but I'll pass on this one. You've got nothing to lose, son. A nice trip to New England, and you're under no obligation. Sorry. Fletcher mumbled something before he hung up. Oh, you'll come around. Jones stared at his phone, pushy. Rest in peace, Bill Jones, Chapter 4. Wabash Corners High School, Wabash Corners, Indiana. I wish Dad were here for the awards. Stephanie wore a flowery short dress with shiny red shoes and a matching bow in her short dark hair. Principal Abbott approached. Hello, Norman, she said in a syrupy voice. Abbott nodded. She maintained her fixed smile until he passed by. Her face then contorted like plastic melting under the heat. Dad always liked awards said Jones. Norman is such a dweeb, she said. Oh, he's okay, said Jones, adjusting his bow tie. I don't think I've worn a bow tie since I was five years old. Well, you look presentable, Sweeble. She saw one of the other teachers in the assembly hall. Excuse me, BRB. She pinched his cheeks and Jones winced. Heh, <laughs> what's the matter, said a voice in the darkened area near the curtain. Little Bo Peep lost her sheep, Sweeble? Jones's smile broke into a laugh as a man in a long, dark leather coat stepped forward. That's funny. <laughs> no, what's funny is the way that chick treats you. He had dark brows and eyes and a silver cross earring dangled from his left ear. His hair curled and danced down his neck. He looked as if another shave might have smoothed out his narrow face. When he smiled, 
His bright teeth never were fully exposed. He lit a cigarette. Hey, the fire marshal says no smoking. <laughs> good for him. You're the guy on the phone, Stefani. Very good, Jonesy. Coco Stefani. They call me Matthias. Wonderful. Listen, you're coming with me back to New Hampshire. Old man Fletcher already paid for the airline seats. In case you're interested, I'm about to be honored by the high school. That right. You're wasting your time here in this place. I know you grew up here, but we're off in your college coaching job. Told Fletcher I was happy here. The old man don't care what you told him. He ain't gonna rest until at least you go back and scope out the town. I'll invite you over to my club. All expenses paid. What about Stephanie? Coco opened his dark eyes wide. The cigarette smoke slowly twisted to the top of the stage curtains. Let me tell you something. That chick is going to drag you down. She's got you dressed up like you're going to a Christmas pageant in kindergarten. How old are you? 23. Yeah, I'm 25. Jonesy, at your age, no matter what your answer is about New Hampshire, you got to play the field. She wants to get married. What are you, deaf, dumb, and blind? I'll be over that dive mulligans. When you're done with your little high school Goomba Yara Ward, come on over. We'll talk about anything you want. Coco leaned around the corner as Stephanie pranced back along the auditorium. He pitched the cigarette on the floor and squashed it with his black-pointed boot. Dump the chick. I'll talk to you, Sweeble. Jones watched him slink out the side door. I smell cigarette smoke, said Stephanie as she sniffed the air. Now I was just one of those tough guys. Did you get his name? Yeah, Stefani. Never mind him. We're going to get introduced to the faculty at any second. Coco got inside a black BMW in the school parking lot. He backed around slowly and then rocketed toward Main Street. As Stephanie tugged on his arm, Jones had already made up his mind to head to Mulligan's after the ceremony. Jones changed into his jeans, a Wabash sweatshirt and sneakers. Mike poured Jones a beer and slid over a bowl of pretzels. The bartender had a full quaff of blonde hair. How the awards go? Wads are an afterthought, Mike. Jones checked the bar for Coco Stefani. Hey, Mike, I'm trying to find a dark-haired guy in a leather coat, silver earring. Mike shook his head. Sounds like a gangster. Jones smacked his lips and grinned. <laughs> Maybe he is. A short man with a huge unshaven jar and ruddy skin stepped around the bar. He wore aqua swimming goggle glasses. He peered around the corner and then ducked away. Where's uh, Stephanie? asked Mike. Jones again turned to his left as the little guy disappeared again. Well, she and her girlfriends went over to eat at Gemini's. Mike rolled his eyes. Oh. Jones turned to his left. The little guy, dressed in camouflage slacks and a navy turtleneck, climbed up on the bar stool and stared at Jones. He had a grating, loud voice and repeatedly cleaned his glasses with a bar napkin. I've been watching you, Jehoshaphat. Who are you? asked Jones. Drink? Mike asked the little man. The guy pounded his fist on the bar and then flipped a coin into the air. It bounced off his forehead. Give me a crinsoma. Jones picked up the Kennedy silver dollar and handed it to the man on the stool. Yeah, ha, ha, ha. Jones creased his brow. This guy was extremely odd. Sorry, buddy, said Mike. I don't have any cranberry vodka, nor do I have any lychee liquor. What's the matter? Don't you like Chinese people? I never said that, said Mike. It's a Chinese drink, so what? Chinese coolies and duty dollies. Tell that to the railroad boys. What? 
The guy jumped onto the bar and began moving his fists in a rotating motion. Whoa, ho, Nelly, said Mike. I think you've had a little bit too much to drink there, pal. Then he faced Jones. Put him up. Jones looked at Mike. I'm not putting him up. Call Rick Martin, Mike. Bounce this guy out of here. Rick doesn't come on for another half an hour. Come on, sport. Get down from there, said Jones. <laughs> You'd like to think you could take me out, wouldn't you? He spun his rotating fist toward Jones. I give you a mouthful of knuckles, or maybe you're just chicken. Jones tilted his head back and laughed at the little guy above him on the bar. When he kicked Jones's shoulder, Jones swung his fist behind the guy's knee. The man's leg buckled, and he landed on his buttocks. He wore weird red and white striped socks. Now why don't you be a good little boy and go back home to mommy, said Jones. Why, you bully, pick on the little guy. He swung wildly as Jones dodged his punch and fell off the bar and landed on the floor. Then he jumped to his feet. Good, good, you passed the test, Jones. How do you know who I am? Monkey see, monkey do. He scampered along the bar and hit the exit door hard enough to bounce back to the floor. His glasses never fell off as he exited the bar. What a moron, said Jones. I've never seen him in here before, Mike. Neither have I, said Mike. He comes back in here and I will have Richie kick his butt. I doubt he's even five foot tall, said Jones, pushing the beard to the side. Real tough guy. Jones watched the second half of the Detroit Pistons basketball game on the overhead monitor as Mike put a fresh beer in front of him. Thanks, Mike. Julie, the waitress, approached Mike with an order from one of the booths. Mr. Stefani would like you to join him and his company in the window booth. Jones glanced across the crowded bar. Finally, Jones said to Mike. Thanks, Julie. Jones grabbed his beer and moved into the outer open area. Coco, his arms around the back of the booth, sat with a blonde and a redhead along the windows in the corner. Jones smiled and raised his brows as he walked the perimeter over to the booth. Coco! Coco, leaning toward the redhead, turned with a cigarette in his hand. Jonesy, come on, sit down. Jones sat next to the blonde. Are you the coach? I am he. Hey, meet Daisy. Daisy, said Jones, setting down his beer. I'm Maisie, said the redhead. Pleasure said Jones. Coco swished the ice cubes around his snub-nosed glass. So where's your sweetheart, Stephanie? Out. I'm sorry to hear that, Jonesy. She should be here celebrating your success. So Coco, tell me about Hamilton College. You're gonna like New England, Jonesy. It's nestled in between the hills and the beaches. Jones smiled. He hadn't agreed to anything. Small town, police chief, couple deputies. Prince William's the big city. Jones sipped the beer. That's where your club is. You really do own a club? said Maisie. I like that, said Daisy, locking her elbow around Jones's arms. Club Max. Bought the club five years ago. Back then it was called the Bayview Club. He looked around. My club has blue neon and everything is new. We got music and girls. You like girls, Jonesy? asked Daisy. Yeah, I like girls. And I like bad boys. Hey, Jonesy, I guess she came to the right place, huh? Asked Coco, holding the glass. Daisy nuzzled up to Jones. Are you a bad boy, Jonesy? As bad as I need to be. Good answer, bro, said Coco, pointing at him. As I was saying, my place is high class, not like this dump. Mulligan's is very popular, said Jones. Jonesy, this place is a dog kennel. No offense, girls. None taken, said Maisie. As Jones lifted his beard, Daisy thrust her tongue in his ear. 
He dropped the glass and spilled it over his jeans and sweatshirt. Hey, can't take him anywhere, said Coco. Hey, Julie, another beer here for the coach. I'll get a towel. You're going to have to change your pants, said Daisy. Right, answered Jones. Coco squinted back toward Mike. What the hell? What's the matter, asked Jones. Nothing. If that cockroach followed me out here, I'll make sure he never gets back. What do you girls do, asked Jones. Come on, Jonesy, don't get all worked up. Wait till we leave here, said Coco. No, what do they do for a living? We're working girls. Well, uh, Coco, this guy Fletcher, he owns the college. Yeah, you kidding? The old man has an iron fist over the whole town. Don't let that rattle you, Jonesy. I found if you produce for the old man, he'll give you everything you want on a silver platter. You'll have the keys to Fletcher Hill. What's that? The family mansion, Mount Olympus, overlooks the town in Prince William. Interesting. You need to come back there with me. Coco's phone rang. Yeah. Oh, father. No, I'm with him right now. Yeah. What? I knew it, said Coco as he stood. I'll personally hammer that little munchkin into the barroom floor. How did you find out? Figures. Thanks, father. I'll talk to you. Who was that? Friend of mine, he gave me the heads up on Lester Larson. Lester Larson, isn't he the football coach at Hamilton? No, that's the old man, Locke Larson. His son Lester does security on campus and is on the sidelines with Larson during the games. Father just gave me the heads up. The little creep followed me out here. Does he wear these swimming goggles? Yeah, that's him. Well, he went after Mike. He stood on the bar and I knocked him on the floor after he went after me. All right. Very good, Jonesy. I couldn't have done better myself. That fish face is bad news. Well, I thought he left. We threw him out of the club the other night back in New Hampshire, said Coco, glancing around the bar. Lawson is so dense, I doubt he even knows his little goof is out here to spy on me. Well, maybe he's gone back to New Hampshire, said Jones. Don't count on it. Julie set down the beer, and Coco threw several bills on her tray. Then the waitress handed a small white towel to Jones. Thank you. I'll help you, coach, said Daisy, grabbing the towel. As she began wiping his shirt, Jones opened his eyes wide. Stephanie and two of her girlfriends burst through the front doors. She raced ahead of the others toward Coco's table. Daisy leaned over and slowly massaged Jones's chest with the towel. Stephanie's voice shot up two octaves. Just... What the hell do you think you're doing? Having a beer, said Jones. With these bimbos? She put her hands on her hips. We take exception to that remark, honey, said Maisie. Gonna introduce me to your friend? asked Coco. Stephanie Coco Stefani. I don't care who he is. Whoa-ho-ho, she pointed at Jones. As far as I'm concerned, we're done. She took off a ring and slammed it on the table. Then she marched past her girlfriends. They all retreated to the front door. Want to go talk to her, Jonesy? asked Coco. Yeah, he said, scooping up the ring. Then he followed her path across Mulligan's and out the front door. Stephanie had reached her little red Toyota. Her friends had crawled inside. Stephanie, wait! She looked across the parking lot. You're making a big mistake. Oh, I made a mistake. That's for damn sure, you cheater. Coco had those girls at the table. Yeah, right. He's the guy who called about the Hamilton College job. You go to New Hampshire, Matthias. Have a good life. 
She climbed in the front seat and the car swerved across the lot before she even closed the passenger side door. Jones shook his head, but he was stunned at how relieved he felt. Stephanie had intruded into his life, as if she had put a fence around his future. He opened Mulligan's heavy wooden door. Mike glanced at him, but Coco's booth was empty. A few seconds later, he emerged from the men's room and motioned Jones up to the bar. I had the girls take off, Jonesy. Hey, if I got you in trouble, don't worry about it. Come on, we'll talk about something else. Where's the doofus? asked Mike. Well, hopefully he's gone. Coco slipped a black and gold business card to Mike. If that worm comes back in here, you call me, my man. Sure. Club Max, New Hampshire. Coco nodded, then turned to Jones. Beer? No, get me a Coke. Coke? I'll have a scotch and water, Mike. I'm thinking about your Hamilton College. Good. It's a nice place. Town's a little wacko, but hey... I've known Stephanie since I was in the third grade. Let me tell you something about woman, Jonesy. Cardinal rule number one. He took the scotch from Mike. Thanks, Mike. What's that? Worst thing you can do is get in the habit of seeing a woman. Unless you head over heels, then you got an excuse. You get in the habit and they make you wear bow ties and striped suits. Point taken. Good. My dad would have agreed. Coco sipped the scotch and tilted his head. Your old man's dead, isn't he? How'd you know? Past tense. You just spoke in the past tense. Mike handed the coke to Jones. Jones nodded his head. Died in September. They said it was a heart attack, but Dad never had heart problems. Well, what did he do? Police detective. Hell, yeah, you're kidding. He held the glass. Who was he after? Jones shook his head. Cops won't tell me, and neither will the FBI. Cardinal rule number two. I never trust the cops. Well, my Aunt May and I have been trying to find some kind of clue, but I've been busy with my team. Oh, yeah, you think? You just won the Nationals, Jonesy. Coco sipped the drink. You find anything? Dad had way too many miles on his odometer. Really? He left football practice and said he might have to go up north. What got me looking is he or someone replaced his cell case. It was brand new, like he tried to signal us something was wrong. And they tried to fix it by replacing the case. And Dad had way too many miles on his odometer. Really? How many of them wear bonus miles? asked Coco. Over 1,200. I checked it out with the guy who serviced the truck. You sure he didn't drive somewhere else? Dad had the flu about the time he brought the truck in for service. The truck was in the shop, and then Aunt May brought it back to the driveway. So I know there's extra mileage, but I just can't figure it all out. Jonesy, it's simple. You get a map and a string. You cut the mileage in two and then swing a circle around Wabash Corners. Not exact, but it could lead you somewhere the cops and the feds don't want to go. Jones stared at him. That's so simple. <laughs> Most things are. He was a detective, right? Right. Then he must have met up with some bad dudes, correct? He left football practice and said he might have to go up north. He had to miss my second game. Sunday morning, he was dead in his truck along the Wabash. Okay, let's put two and two together. Or as my brother Anthony used to say, sometimes that's not as easy as you think. So you're saying Dad was murdered. Jonesy, look at the profession he was in. He didn't spend his time tiptoeing through the tulips. No, he didn't. I'm not saying he was murdered, but you have to look how things add up. Jones studied Coco's eyes. 
you with organized crime? Coco produced a low ascending smile. Jonesy, sometimes it's not best to ask too many questions. Jones let that one settle and he looked around the bar. Where are you staying? I'm at the Stoplight Motor Lodge. Coming back with me to Aunt May's house. I've got folders on Dad's death. Hey, I don't want to put you out, Jonesy. Don't worry about it. Coco pushed the drink aside. I like you, Jonesy, and I don't like too many people, and I trust even less. I could count them all on one hand. You may have sold me on Hamilton College, but, like I said, I was born here. Come on, Jonesy, what is this, old home week? You went away to college, didn't you? Well, that's true. And your girlfriend just bailed on you. She did. Mock my words, she'll come crawling back. If you're on the East Coast, she's not going to mess up your life. Coaching college, Jonesy, think about it. And I'm telling you, once you start winning, and you will, the old man Fletcher will treat you like a prince. I know, I know. You're welcome at my club anytime. We're doing a little upgrade, more room. And I've got girls in there all the time. Really? Yeah, really. Well, I'm not a wild party guy, and I'm focused on my team. Doesn't mean you can't have a little fun. Let's talk about it in the morning. We'll get your bags from the motel. Where'd your old man hang out? BFW Hall. His best friend was Iggy Runnels. He was close to Father Nowicki. Maybe he confessed something. No. What would he confess? Plus, even with Dad dead, Nowicki can't reveal anything. I know that, but sometimes you learn what you need to know by watching how somebody reacts. Kind of like Daisy and Maisie. I know what you did. Oh, me? Asked Coco as he opened up the door for Jones. You set me up. Hey, look, Jonesy. Jones put his hand on Coco's shoulder. You did me a favor. Right, I'm aware of that. Thanks. Don't mention it. Rest in Peace, Bill Jones, Chapter 5. Aunt May's Farmhouse, 322 Old Wabash Road, Wabash Corners, Indiana. As Jones reached the top of the kitchen stairs, the furnace hummed in the basement, and an oily odor inundated the farmhouse. Aunt May's laughter and Coco's voice meandered up from the kitchen downstairs. Sizzling bacon and eggs prompted Jones to think he had awoken in a bed and breakfast. Coco spoke again as Jones descended the wood stairs. No, my mother makes it with canned tomatoes, dried oregano, and two tablespoons of extra virgin olive oil. You're full Italian and you still use canned tomatoes? asked Aunt May. You taste it and you know. The cheese, the torn basil, and crusty bread when she serves it. Makes me hungry, said Jones, appearing at the bottom of the stairs in his workout shorts and green Wabash jersey. You're making that now? Jonesy, that's my mother's pasta fazool. We're cooking a cheese omelet here. Jones was seriously considering leaving Wabash Corners for the new job. The kitchen's yellow walls extended eight feet to the plaster ceiling, giving the room a homey look. Aunt May's old steel stove had been replaced by a dark range with a copper range hood. He gazed out the long windows to the frozen fields he had known since he was a boy. In the spring, sharecroppers planted wheat, soy, and barley. Aunt May raised her dark eyebrows. Oh, by the way, Matthias, your sweatshirt and pants from last night are in the wash. <laughs> Jonesy had a little accident, said Coco, shaping the omelet with a spatula. What did you do, wrestle in beer? asked Aunt May. I just spilled my beer. 
said Jones as he pushed a fork into the omelet and then tasted it. This is very good. Hey, we don't fool around here. I need to start the coffee, added Aunt May. Matthias, this Hamilton job is a great opportunity. Oh, yeah, sure. Soften up my aunt, said Jones. She's on board, Jonesy. It's a done deal. If Bill were here, he'd carry you to the airport, chided Aunt May. So there, Jonesy. By the way, I had a map on the table during the night. Coco thinks Bill went to Detroit, said Aunt May. No, I said it's possible he went to Detroit, Aunt May, said Coco. Detroit's a long way from Wabash Corners, said Jones, sticking the fork in the omelet. Hey, 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 we're almost done here, hot shot, said Coco, tapping Jones's wrist with the spatula. The phone rang and Aunt May disappeared down the hall. Jones faced Coco. You've been selling her on this Hamilton thing all morning. Yeah, so what? She should come back there with you. She'll never leave Wabash Corners, said Jones as Aunt May emerged from the hall. Iggy will be over here in a few minutes. Jones held Coco's shoulder. You move quick. I have to. Now sit down. Breakfast is served. You want OJ? Aunt May steered Jones, his mouth open to the table. And he wants his toast. Dark. You're as bad as he is, said Jones, smiling. Quiet, Jonesy. This is going to be the best move of your life. Coco, wearing oven mitts, lifted the huge black fry pan to the table and slid a portion of the omelet off of the spatula. Old man Fletcher ordered you to bring me back here, didn't he? When it comes to my benefactors, I can be very accommodating. Iggy had a few strands of gray hair combed straight back and a wrinkled forehead from years of exposure to the sun. Coco immediately befriended him and talked to him about his highway department job. The roads back east are all chewed up with potholes, Iggy. I'd like to say our mayor fills the potholes. The only thing he fills is his pockets. Iggy became serious and gestured with his index finger. Potholes can ruin a car's alignment. Coco nodded. <laughs> no kidding. Did Dad say anything about traveling to Detroit, Iggy? Iggy shrugged his shoulders. Just up north is all he told me. Said he'd be gone for at least three days. Hey, wait a minute, said Coco. The guy's leaving for a few days and ends up near the river? With all those miles on the truck, said Aunt May. What else did he say, Iggy? Iggy stroked his chin and lifted a coffee mug to his mouth. Well, he said rock and roll when he left in the truck. Dad always said rock and roll whenever he had to get going, said Jones. Coco peered out the window. Chicago, Cleveland, Buffalo, Detroit, who the hell knows? Well, I wanted to talk, but he had to leave and he had Chuck Berry playing in the truck. Then he was gone. That must have been after I saw him at practice, said Jones. He also said what he always said. Thugs are dangerous, Iggy. The phone rang again. Aunt May called for Coco a few seconds later from the hallway phone. It's somebody named Ham Fisher from New Hampshire. Coco disappeared down the hall. Iggy, did Dad seem worried? No, he was in a good mood. Did he mention anybody's name? Just Mark Donovan. He said he needed to see him for a few minutes. I've known Donovan since I was a little boy. He worked with Dad for years. You know that. I think he knows what happened. Coco's voice echoed down the hall. Ham, you tell Lawson I'll string his ass up the stadium flagpole if he sent his dummy son out here. That little midget has a motor mouth, and if I see him out here, I'll either shoot him or run him down. Good. 
And you can tell your father that too, Ham. He slammed the phone down and returned to the kitchen, shaking his head. The younger Hamilton Fletcher, said Jones. Right. Old man Lawson says he doesn't know where Lester is. Sure, Lawson's on another planet. Iggy stepped toward Coco. Bill did talk with Donovan before we left. Well, I do know this. Bill always had a good relationship with the FBI, said Aunt May. The question is, where did he go after Donovan? asked Coco. You need to talk to Donovan, Jonesy. think you're right. The second floor FBI office was in a building with no elevator. The pale green walls and a row of overhead fluorescent lights gave the long room a chilled, sterile look. Donovan was expected momentarily, and his agent, Eugene B. Bender, a very tall and very loud FBI veteran with crop gray hair, told Jones three times to go home. Hey, this is a public office, Bender, snapped Coco, lighting a cigarette. Agent Bender, answered the gruff Bender, and put out the butt. What do you clowns want in here anyway? Clowns? The only circus is in this office, Bender, said Coco. Give me your license, ordered Bender. Ain't giving you nothing, replied Coco, his face flushed. You're not from around here, are you? Coco jabbed his finger at Bender but kept smoking. Hey, brilliant, just brilliant. The rear door opened and Donovan, dressed in a full dark suit, stepped inside. His dark beard stubble matched his black hair, even though he was pushing 50. Donovan shook Jones's hands. Thias, why are you here? Last time we talked, you were requesting the medical report on your father. Donovan had an involuntary habit of producing a grin when he spoke. I did get the report. Heart attack. Is there any way something else could have killed him? I don't think so. The whole team has reviewed the slides, and it was simply a clot. Coco looked out the window. What about an induced heart attack? Donovan squinted as Jones spoke. My friend, Mr. Stefani. Coco shook his hand. Mark Donovan. I'm not sure how you'd induce a heart attack. Peroxide, said Coco. Forms clots, and you never know it was in there. That, sir, is unprovable. <laughs> exactly. We don't have to listen to this, Mark said Bender. Bender, I'll handle this. Bender threw up his hands and retreated into a side office. Donovan sat on the desk closest to Jones. As I told you, your dad was working on things involving this office and a number of other agencies. Where? No comment. Then what was it? asked Jones. No comment. Ah, jeez, said Coco. Did you give him a cell phone? asked Jones. There's no record of any police business on his phone. No, we did not. And let me just say that people are still investigating. There would have been no need to murder Bill, because that is what you're saying, isn't it? Well, there was a new phone case on his phone. How do you know that? Because the old one was beat to hell. Maybe he slipped it off, and they had to replace it. They? Unless Jonesy's old man dug up something. Why do you say that? asked Donovan. He said he was going up north for a few days. Hey, Jones, you're a wannabe, said Bender from the side office. Just following in your footsteps, Eugene. That brought a smile to Donovan's face. As far as answering any questions, Matthias, you're well aware I can't reveal anything about an ongoing investigation. Wait, said Coco. Let me talk to my friend here for a second. Coco dragged Jones into the outside stairwell. What's the problem, Coco? 
I'll tell you what the problem is. I don't trust the other guy. Bender? Yeah. Don't ask me why, but I know that guy is trouble. And don't tell them nothing about the mileage, Jonesy. I'm not worried about Donovan. He's okay. Just go in and go buy the book. Bender starts blabbing. That could get back to the wrong people. You really don't trust Bender. <laughs> Let me tell you something, Jonesy. I grew up on the streets of Prince William, New Hampshire, along the docks. I know people. I had to know people. Trust me. I'm glad you're here. What? He asked as if he had just inhaled some foul substance. What I'm saying is thanks for helping me out. Something ain't right here. I smell a rat. Jones nodded. Or rats. Donovan held a legal document in his hands. Sheriff Boynton has multiple complaints from residents. They arrested a guy for driving into every mailbox on Main Street. A nutcase from New Hampshire. Coco raised his arms. Ha ha, here we go. His blood alcohol level was off the charts. <laughs> Lester, said Coco. See a friend of yours? Friend? I came out here to recruit Jonesy here to be coach for Hamilton College. Lawson is the son of the coach who's being bounced. I was warned that he might follow me out here. Well, he doesn't have bail money. Oh, well, said Coco. Well, Mark, thanks for nothing. Matthias, stay out of this. I can fend for myself, he said, staring into Donovan's dark eyes for several seconds before he turned. Bender spoke on the phone as they passed the other office and moved into the stairwell. Jones stopped outside the front door downstairs. He all but told you, Jonesy, this whole thing and your father's death is trouble. Coco, it doesn't matter how they killed Dad. Coco lit a cigarette and exhaled. What do you mean by that? Just a side road theory. A what? Dad said that when he had a hunch. If I keep trying to find out how they did it, I'll go down the rabbit hole. The key to this is the mileage. I think he drove out of town right after he talked to Iggy. Sure there were miles between the truck service and after he left. Jonesy, you can't drive 1,200 miles in one night. We're talking Chicago, Toledo, Detroit, or even Cleveland. are all less than six hours away. So any one of them are possible. Maybe. Coco rounded the BMW. Donovan knows who your father was after and who they were. Jones got inside. He can't tell us. <laughs> Listen, you do what you have to do. He started the car. Don't worry about New Hampshire right now. Thanks. One more thing. Whatever you need me to do, I'll help you out. Well, you don't have to. Hey, I know I don't have to. I think somebody nailed your old man. I can help you get to the bottom of this. What are you going to do, bail Lester out of the clink? If I bailed that little goon out, it would be to drive him to the bridge over the river and escort him over the edge. Jones smiled. How did he ever work for the Fletcher family? He's Locke Larson's son. He doesn't get paid. They let him ride around on his motor scooter as campus security. He's like a go-between with Strickland. Who? Police chief. Lester helps Lawson during the games. Waterboy. Team manager who thinks he's an assistant coach. Jones laughed and nodded. And this guy Larson is as short as his son? I think Fishface's mother was a pygmy. Jones, energy from the investigation, bundled up, could not control his laughter. Even Coco started to laugh. <laughs> Pygmy? Yeah, yeah, but listen, old man Fletcher told me Lawson is out, kaput. What about Lester? He can skip down the yellow brick road to Munchkinland for all I care. Jones grinned again, then his face became serious. Now that I know that Dad put on those miles quick, there has to be a gas record. Then check your old man's gas or credit card. 
paid cash for everything. Come on. He covered his tracks, Coco. Yeah, I guess that's smart, said Coco as he shifted. Wait, if he's going to one of those cities, and we don't know that he did, he'd have to fill up on the interstate. Likely. What do you mean, likely? That's what he did, but that was two months ago, Jonesy. I want to talk to Iggy again. Iggy don't know nothing. They were just buddies. You don't know that. Coco pulled into the dirt drive, past Dad's truck, and under the spreading oak tree toward Aunt May's yellow farmhouse. Jones faced him. What do you think? Think I want to shower and have a good meal. He pointed at Jones. And don't tell me that Dive Mulligan's food is good. It is. Coco stepped outside. Jones stared at Dad's truck parked against the fence. How about a Thai restaurant? I ain't eating no grass and bamboo. Stephanie likes it. I rest my case, Sweevil. The authorities are holding something back about Matthias Jones' father's death, saying he had a heart attack caused by a blood clot. Jones gets a call from Coco Stefani, who has been watching him win the national championship on Channel Z. A few days later, Hamilton Fletcher calls. Coco flies to Indiana to meet Jones, and as Coco's meeting with Jones, Stephanie, Jones's girl back there in Indiana, breaks up with him. When Jones and Coco go into the FBI office, they feel like they're getting the runaround. The forensics indicate murder, not a heart attack. Coco and Jones begin working together like they will when Jones gets back to Hamilton. This is Robert P. Fitton. Join me next week for Rest in Peace, Bill Jones, Episode 2, where Jones flies back to New Hampshire. See you then. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com. And here's a real nifty factoid. You can listen to all my audiobooks without interruption on audible.com. Just type in Robert P. Fitton. Thank you and good night.